Severn and Severn, how are we? All right, good. That's good. It's good. You should be good. Today, uh, today is the Super Bowl of preaching. You may uh, have heard it referred to more commonly as Easter. And what today is, is the day that we, we devote special focus and attention to the event that is really central to the belief system. It is the, key, the keystone to the belief system known as Christianity. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how often you keep this thought in mind, but just to give you an idea of how important this topic is, Paul the Apostle, who himself was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ, said regarding the resurrection that if we have gotten this wrong, if, if we have allegorized something that did not literally happen, uh, he didn't say, you know, Christianity still has a lot of good ideas. It gives people warm and fuzzies and it does a lot of good in this world, so no harm, no foul. He said under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that if we're wrong about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we of all people are most to be pitied. And so what that means is that what we're going to talk about today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the T upon which the entire belief system known as Christianity rests. Now given the gravity and the immensity, how important this actually is, I want to read to you an eyewitness account of it from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. It says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. I always felt bad for the guards, just doing their job. Verse 5, but the angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Yeah, that's worth clapping about. Yep, yep, yep. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples he's been raised from the dead. In fact, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. Listen, I've told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, Good morning. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine? <laughs> Sorry. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told him, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Verse 18, then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. We got a lot to talk about today. Um, First and foremost, uh, 
this, this Easter teaching is going to be, uh, I've been doing this for eight years, and I was thinking about Easter teachings that I've given. This one's going to depart from the rest of them. Um, but instead of telling you how I'm going to do that, let me just get into it. When, when people in our late, modern, secular culture confront an account like this, an account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's two questions that you have to be willing to deal with. Number one, did this really happen? And number two, what does this really mean? So first off, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happen? Yeah. Let's just move to point two. <laughs> We got we to gotta ask that question because of how skeptical people in our culture are regarding miracles. And let me, let me say this. Even if you are not personally skeptical of this miracle, which at least one person's not, even if you are not personally wrestling with this, um, it is irresponsible for you to avoid it. And the reason I say that is because even if you're not wrestling with it, people you know and love are. That might be your kids, it might be your spouse, it might be your parents, your friends, your coworkers, whatever it is, but you have to be able to speak to this question. It's not good enough to say, I heard it when I was young and I believe because I believe because I believe, because that's not going to help them, and the truth is it's really not going to help you and I throughout the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys of this life. We've got to have something more than that. And so first and foremost, we've we got to wrestle with this question, did it really happen? Secondly, we have to ask the question, what does it really mean? Because the resurrection is not just some, some bare historical fact that you give intellectual assent to and then walk away from unchanged by. And so that's what, that's what we're going to focus all of our time on today. First off, looking at the question, did this really happen? And secondly, what does it really mean? So first off, did it really happen? If you ask the average person in our culture today about Jesus, you know, give me an idea of who Jesus is or Christianity in general, you're going to hear something like this. And maybe this is familiar. Maybe some of you think this way. Maybe you have you know, people that uh, are in your life that, that have, have shared thoughts like this. Jesus was a wise teacher. Uh, he was very loving. He seemed to be you know, a little bit ahead of his time. Um, but as his followers uh, you know, throughout the centuries began to embellish on who he was and what he did, you know, the, the accounts of him became sort of legendary and, and muddled throughout history, and they started saying he was the Son of God, he's divine, he's done these miracles, he was raised from the dead. And, and eventually those stories got written down and compiled in what Christians refer to as their New Testament, and that's how you have Christianity. Uh, that's a very common understanding of Christianity, which is it's basically an amalgamation of what you're going to hear in, in, in Religion 101 at, at probably any secular university in the country, Philosophy 101, uh, and maybe some aspects of the Da Vinci Code. I don't know. The only problem with that explanation of Christianity is that absolutely every aspect of it is wrong. So first off, uh, the New Testament documents written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul primarily were not um, accounts written centuries after the events they described uh, so that this kind of like historical game of telephone was able to take place where, you know, the stories that are now recorded are nothing like what originally happened. Nobody even remembers. That's just not how this works. And you can actually see evidence of that in verse 15 of Matthew's gospel account. Verse 15 says that they took the money, soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. See, Matthew was writing this account so soon after the events that he's describing that he could still speak to the fact that this particular explanation of the resurrection was still in circulation in his day. Matthew was only writing 30 years after these events took place, and, and maybe you've never heard this before, but Paul the Apostle was only writing 15 years after these events. 
And if you're, if you're familiar with some of Paul's writings, you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he was seen by numerous people. And he actually goes further than that and says that on one occasion, the risen Christ was seen by over 500 people at one time. Most of those people are still alive, and therefore you can go and ask them yourself. Now, let me just point something out. That is an insane thing to write down if you're just making this whole thing up. Christianity would have been debunked about a half hour later if there was nothing to it. And so my point is that the accounts of the resurrection were not written decades and centuries later as you know, legends of something that nobody really remembers and therefore nobody can disprove. These are accounts that were written within the lifetimes of the people who were actually there and therefore could have debunked them. So my point here is that these are historical documents. Now, a lot of people in, in, in our culture today might hear that and say, Fine, they're historical documents, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know, you, you can't possibly tell me, Ryan, that you actually believe in a resurrection, that a dead guy came back to life never to die again. And what I'd like to do is offer you three reasons from this specific passage that you can believe that. Three reasons that cause me to believe it that I think hopefully will cause you to believe it. I want to look at the demographics of the eyewitnesses. I want to look at the skepticism of the eyewitnesses. And then I'm going to look at the transformation of the eyewitnesses. First, the demographics. Verse 8 says that the women hurried away from the tomb. You know, they, they were experiencing kind of this mixture of fear and joy at the same time, which I think you can appreciate given what they had just seen. Uh, and they ran to tell the disciples. So, so pause there for a minute. The first witnesses of the resurrection, of the resurrected Jesus according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all gospel accounts agree that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus were women and only women. The reason that's really significant is because 2,000 years ago in first century Judaism, this was a day and age in which female testimony was not even admissible evidence in a court of law. That didn't, it just didn't count. It was a, it's an incredibly paternalistic society. Uh, women were not seen as full citizens or equal by any stretch of the imagination. So, so what does that mean? Why is that significant? Here's why it's significant. If you were making this story up 2,000 years ago, you would have never put the women in there because not only does that not help the credibility of the story, in that day and age it actually undermined it. The authors of the gospel accounts would have known that the, the average person in first century Judaism would have seen this detail and said, okay, so women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. We don't believe anything else they say, so why would we believe them with something this important, this seemingly ridiculous sounding? This would be the modern day equivalent of if, if I was inventing a religion that's based on a miraculous event it would be like me saying, uh, guys, my five-year-old daughter Scarlett swears she saw this. You've got to believe me. You just wouldn't write that unless it were true. And so theologians have correctly pointed out uh, that, that even though women were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus, they would have been under tremendous incentive, tremendous pressure to not include that detail simply because of the low status that women occupied in that society. I'm certainly not saying that that was right. That was definitely wrong, but that's the way that it was. And so the question is, why would gospel writers write this way when they had so much incentive not to? The most plausible explanation is because what they were writing was true. That's the demographics of the witnesses. Secondly, I want to look at, at the skepticism of the witnesses. Because, you know, even in hearing that, again, a, a lot of people, I've heard this before, maybe you've thought this before, a lot of people today will say, all right, well, 
you know, back then in the ancient world, people were really gullible and they were more prone to being misled and deceived. So they would have bought into something like this. So, so let's talk about the skepticism of these witnesses for a second. I'm going to look at verses 16 and 17. And maybe you're going you're gonna to see something here that you've never paid attention to before. Verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped. But, but see this, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? That these people saw the resurrected Christ with their own two eyes. Meanwhile, Jesus had prophesied that this is the way it was going to happen for you know, multiple times leading up to his crucifixion. These people can actually see him now, and yet some doubted. So let me ask you, if you were making all of this up, would you have bothered to include the detail that some of the apostles the first leaders and founders of the church themselves had trouble believing that Jesus Christ had really been raised from the dead, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, no, you would not write that unless it actually happened. You know, most people would say uh, that their doubt was immediately replaced with this courageous, unwavering faith. It's actually almost unreal to me that it's, 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 in, it's encouraging to me, but it's almost unreal to me that it's included for us that the apostles themselves had doubts. But this is exactly how real life would be. All right, I don't want to speak for you, but let me go ahead and definitely do that right now. If the resurrected Jesus appeared to you later today, I don't think, maybe some of us, maybe the holiest of us, but I don't think your first response would be, I knew it. You know, here, here am I, send me kind of thing. I think your first response would be, what is happening? Did I eat something? Have I been drugged? Is this real? This can't be real. You know, you'd, you'd, it would take you a minute to process that. That's how it would be with normal people, and these are normal people in this story. But the reason that they wrestle with doubts is not just because they're normal people. There's, there's more going on here. Let me, let me dig into this a little bit. Modern people tend to think, you know, we don't believe in miracles today because we know better. We have a scientific understanding of the world, and so, you know, we're, we're done with that. We know more than they do. That's why we, we don't believe the things that they believed. You know, back then, people are gullible, no understanding of science. So, you know, again, they're, they're, they're going to be prone to being misled by this kind of stuff. And let me, let me speak to that idea. It is true that back then, people in the ancient world were more likely to believe in miracles and to believe in the supernatural. But consider something for a moment here. The people in this story are first century Jews. Now, in Jesus' day, we know from the gospel accounts, in Jesus' day, most Jewish people, though not all, not groups like the Sadducees and others, most Jewish people did believe in a resurrection at the end of history. The thought process was that at the end of history, God's going to gather the faithful few to himself. He's going to restore the world. He's going to um, resurrect his, his righteous people, and they're going to inherit that. All right? Most Jewish people believe that, but, but follow me. What no Jewish person believed at all, what absolutely no Jewish people believed, is that one person could get their resurrected body in the middle of history and just start walking around while the rest of the world was still broken by sin. Nobody believed that. Nobody taught that. And on top of that, Jews were the last people in the world to believe that a, a, a person could actually be the Son of God. Jewish worldview was virulently and is today virulently against the idea that you can worship a human being as divine. And, and so I'm saying that to say, if you were going to invent a religion with which you wanted to deceive and mislead first century Jewish people, you would never come up with something that sounds like Christianity because you knew Jews would be the last person to believe this. 
And, and so people today, and maybe even some of the people listening to me right now, might have different reasons for being skeptical about the validity of the resurrection. But, but the point I'm trying to, to show you here is that the people in this story, first century Jewish people, the first people to follow Jesus, were just as unwilling to accept this as you or I would be. Might have been for different reasons, but they, were just, they, they would have been just as biased against the idea of this. So let me, let me, let me ask you a question. Let me offer this as sort of a, a, a thought experiment. If you have any doubts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you're skeptical about it at all, and I'm sure you know some of you are, some maybe more than others, some maybe you are, but you've never felt the freedom to say that out loud, who knows where you're coming from? Let me ask you this. What kind of evidence would you need to completely dismantle all of your doubts and have you to go all in on Christianity? How strong would the evidence need to be? I'm, I'm willing to bet pretty strong is the answer. But, but what I want you to see here is that the people in this story, their doubts were just as strong as your or my doubts would be, and yet they did go all in on this. They devoted their entire lives to this. Most of them decided to die rather than deny this, which means they must have received the evidence that you yourself would need to believe it. So whatever, whatever else you think about the, the, the people in these stories, just know these are not gullible morons that were willing to believe the impossible because they had no problem exercising blind faith. These people had every reason, according to their worldview, to discard the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the belief system of Christianity in general, but they didn't. And the most plausible explanation for that is because this is true. Right, that's the skepticism of the witnesses. Thirdly, I'll, t- I'll be quick about this one. Let- let's talk about the transformation of the eyewitnesses. Verse 19, very famous verse. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that's a very famous verse. Christians will sometimes call that the Great Commission. I just want to ask you, have you ever really asked yourself what Jesus is saying there? Let me, let, me, let me put this in, in slightly different terms. Th- this is what Jesus is saying. All right, you 11 uneducated fishermen, go change the world by telling them that your, your dead Jewish carpenter rabbi came back to life because he was God. And that's what they say. You know, the, you know what the disciples said to that? Uh, when did we get started? You know, there's no arguing with Jesus. There's no... Uh, Jesus, this, this story, can we doll it up a little bit? You're, you know, we're, I, I can't make, I'm imagining some difficult situations we're going to find ourselves in. Are you sure that we should be the ones? There's none of that. They just say, cool, whose car are we taking kind of thing. That's the mindset here. Now, why, you know why that is? Because when, here's why. Because when you see your rabbi successfully predict and pull off his own death and resurrection, it tends to instill some confidence in you. These people were transformed by what they saw and what they knew to be true. And so let me put all of this together, just kind of recapping what we just covered. First off, you can say, you know, I don't even really believe that there was an empty tomb. Fine. But it would have been impossible for Paul, writing just 15 years after this, to say that Jesus personally appeared to 500 people, they're still alive and you can go talk to them, if there was a dead guy in the tomb. If there was no empty tomb, we would have never heard about Jesus and Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. And so maybe you hear that and you think, okay, there's an empty tomb. But obviously his followers took the body and made this whole thing up, like the people in this story actually came up with. You know, people still believe that today. Maybe the tomb was empty. His followers just, you know, they, they stole it and, 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 they, and they, they kept the lie secret. Okay, fine. 
Let's follow that logic for a moment here. So these people hid the body of Jesus and made the whole thing up. And then these liars went on to live lives of, of courage and compassion and sacrificial love that turned the Roman Empire and the entire world upside down. And the vast majority of them chose to be disenfranchised, marginalized, tortured, and murdered for what they knew was a lie? You know, for the first several hundred years of Christianity in the Roman Empire, I think we forget this sometimes, you had nothing to gain and everything to lose by raising your hand and saying, I follow Jesus. It got so bad that when you were baptized, you had your property confiscated. Your family cut you out. Your friends wanted nothing to do with you. By the time Nero sat on the throne of the Roman Empire, they were burning Christians alive, boiling them in oil, and feeding them to wild animals. So your explanation of this is that hundreds and thousands of men and women chose to suffer these unimaginably gruesome deaths for what they knew they were making up. I'm sorry, that, that's not convincing to me. And, and so maybe you hear that and you say, all right, it wasn't a hoax, but it's a, it's a sincere delusion. They were wrong, but they really believed what they believed. You know, they weren't necessarily being malicious. It's just these people needed hope. They needed, they needed something to believe in. Their hope was gone. They talked themselves into believing this. People do that all the time, right? But again, that just shows that you don't really have a good grasp of what specifically Jewish people in the first century were like. I'm, I, really, it's appropriate to say no one here is more skeptical to the truth claims of Christianity than a Jewish person in the first century would have been. But they evidently got the evidence that they needed to transform their lives and cause them to devote their lives to this. And here we are, here we are, church, 2,000 years later, and every single year, billions of people with a B are still celebrating the birth, death, and resurrection of one Jewish rabbi who dared to claim something that no other founder of any other major belief system has ever dared to claim, which is not just that he was here to help you find God, but that he actually was God and he came down here to find you. So I don't know if you find that compelling or you've never thought about it this way or, or what, but I have said everything that I've said up to this point to make one statement. Everything I said can be boiled down to this. Here it is. Any intellectually responsible person will investigate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there are really good reasons to believe that this really did happen. But it's not enough to simply believe this as a naked fact. And so the second question that we have to wrestle with as we approach the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just did it happen, but what does it mean? If Jesus was raised from the dead, and he really was raised from the dead, the question is, what should that mean for you and I today? What does that mean, and how should we believe it in a way that actually changes us? And I'm going to break this answer into two parts, but Jesus actually answers that question very succinctly for us at the end of this verse. Here's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. It means he is with you. He says it himself in the final verse of Matthew's gospel account. I am with you always. And so if you believe in the crucified and resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ is with you, not only through it all, but to the end. And so during, during the remnants of our time together, I just want to walk through those two ideas, two implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what they mean for you and I today. Number one, I know we took our time getting to it, but number one, the resurrection means that Jesus is with you through it all. Verse 18 
It says, Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, some of you are probably aware that in other places in Scripture, we're told that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and that imagery is meant to tell us that Jesus is not just floating around in heaven playing a harp right now. The person who sits at the right hand of the king is the person who, who basically runs the country and executes the will of the king. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 18, and this is exactly how his disciples would have understood it, Jesus is saying that he has sovereign control over everything that happens, not just in history generally, but in your and my life personally. And the way that Jesus rules, the way that Jesus reigns, uh, the, the kind of sovereign that Jesus is, he operates on the basis of what you can call the cross-resurrection principle. So, so here's what I mean by that. When we see the cross, what we're seeing is the culmination of, of evil and sinfulness and corruption and injustice and betrayal and rejection and sorrow and heartache and pain and loss and absolutely everything that every human heart intuitively knows is not right with this world. And all of it is being personally experienced by Jesus Christ. That's the cross. But, but in the end, by the time that stone rolls away and Jesus is raised to life, never to die again, what that means is that in the end, uh, all of those horrible things had no power except to accomplish the greatest salvific act in history. Meaning all of those quantifiably terrible things that happened to Jesus, in the end, all they had the power to do was the opposite of what they intended to do, which was throw open the doors of heaven so that absolutely anybody can be made right with God by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's the cross resurrection principle. It's that God is so powerful and God is so wise that he can take things that are irredeemably bad and he can turn them into something unimaginably good. Only God can do that. And he is really good at it. Now, now it's easy for us to see that and say amen to that because we live on the north side of Calvary and we can see what God was up to. But if I could ask you to consider this from a, a first person perspective for a moment here, just remember, there were people gathered around the cross, witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ with their own two eyes. People that loved Jesus, people that knew Jesus, people that actually believed in Jesus. And I want to tell you, not a single one of them looked on at the cross and said, I am so excited about what God's going to do through this. Not a single one of them. Every single one of them had the same mindset. Every single one of them found themselves saying, I just don't see how God could bring anything good out of something this bad. And they said that because they didn't understand the cross-resurrection principle. And so let me, let me bring that home to us for a moment here. I am positive that there's people listening to me right now and you are looking at things in your life things that are going on in your life right now, things that are going on around you, maybe things that have happened in your past that are still affecting you today, and you have that very same mindset. A mindset that says, I just don't see how good, I, I don't see how any good could come out of something this bad. And the reason that you feel that way and you think that way, and the reason that I so often feel that way and think that way, is because we have forgotten the very first thing Jesus Christ says here, that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. 
Abraham Kuyper once famously said that there is not one square inch on planet earth over which the risen Christ does not say mine and I rule it. And I want to tell you as a follower of Jesus, there is not one situation you will ever enter into over which the risen Christ does not say mine and I rule it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that he is with you and that he will overrule everything that happens to you so that in the end, all of those things will have no power over you except to accomplish a greater glory, a greater glory that would have never otherwise been possible except for what God saw fit to lead you through. This is exactly what Paul the Apostle himself and eyewitness to the resurrected Savior of the world said in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those that love God. That verse does not say the good things are going to work together for those that love God. It says all things. That means even bad things, even painful things, even devastating things, even things that you feel like have wounded you or fractured you or have you walking through life with a limp even now. God is so powerful. He is so wise. He's going to find a way to even turn those things ultimately for your good. And that doesn't mean we're going to see the fulfillment of that in a year or five or ten years. I think the truth is we're we're not going to see but a fraction of the fulfillment of that verse during our time here. But what that verse is, is a promise that from the vantage point of eternity, everyone who's put their trust in Jesus is going to be able to look back and see that Jesus Christ is so sovereign, he is so in charge, he is so brilliant, he is so wise, he is so caring, he is so loving that he overruled everything that happened to us so that even the evil things that happened to us had no power over us except to accomplish the opposite of their original intention. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. And as that reality more and more frames our reality, that produces a peace and a joy and a quiet confidence in us that liberates us from being held captive by what's happening around us. That's the the first thing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. It means that he is with you through it all. But secondly, and this is going to be my final idea during our time together, number two, the resurrection means that Jesus is with you to the end. The final word to this passage, verse 20, Jesus says, and remember. And I got to believe that he, he said remember because he knew how quickly we'd forget. Remember. I am with you always to the end of the age. The resurrection means that at the end of history, Jesus is going to be there, which means that in the end, everything will be made right. That's what it means in general, but for you and me personally, the resurrection means that if you've put your faith in Jesus, then at the end of your personal story, Jesus is going to personally be there for you. And what that means is that the ending of your story, no matter how painful some of the chapters have been, the ending of your story will be a happy one. Never shared this story with you all before, but I figure Easter was an appropriate time to do it. Um, Late last year, I was invited um, to speak at the chapel service uh, for my son Everett's school. He's in first grade, and... um, And I thought it would be a cool idea when the principal asked me to not tell my boy. You know, I wanted to surprise him with it. So I didn't say anything. And uh, they had an idea for what they wanted me to teach. Um, They were going through 1 Corinthians 13, all about the different aspects of love. And they wanted me to teach on the the idea that love protects. And so I had it all planned out. You know, I was uh, 
Some of you know I was a firefighter for Anne Arundel County, so my plan was I was going to take my, my turnout gear that I actually wore into house fires with me, and I was going to call Everett up on stage. I was going to dress him up in my gear, and my point was going to be that, you know, just like um, a firefighter's gear protects them, God's love protects us, and it was going to be great, you know. His teachers are going to weep. His principal was going to say, tuition's free from here on out, gravy. <laughs> Had it all planned out. So the day came, I was embarrassingly nervous about sharing the gospel with elementary school kids. Like embarrassingly nervous. The day came, I got there, I walked up on stage, and uh, turns out actually amazing crowd. Like super pumped about everything you say. Just constant rounds of applause. So I called Everett up on stage, and I laid out my gear, and I said, alright, we're going to dress up Everett. You know, he's like he's getting ready for his first house fire. And, uh, and everybody cheered. I mean, they were losing their minds. Everybody cheered, except Everett. And Everett looked at the gear, and he looked at me, and he looked at his classmates, and he said, I don't want to do this. And then he walked off the stage. Uh, and that was a curveball. Uh, thankfully, there was a lot of super enthusiastic volunteers that day, so another kid came up with me. I dressed him up. I made my point, and, uh, you know, that was it. It certainly was not the day that I had, had mapped out in my mind, um, ever came up to me afterwards, I think his teacher made him to say, you know, thanks or goodbye or whatever. It was a little weird, but like, you can't be mad at your son for that. Like, you know, you, of course, you're not going to be like, you know, I wanted him up there with me, but he, you know, he's nervous. I get that. I'm always nervous. Nervous right now. I'm a nervous wreck. So later that night, uh, every, every, all the kids were in bed. And, um, and Everett got up and he, he, and he walked into my room. And Everett shares a, a, a room with his little sister Scarlett, and so when he got up, you know, she got up, and when they got up, they woke up my two-year-old son, Hayes, and that is like the, the worst thing you can, you can start a fire inside my home, and I'll forgive you, just don't wake up the two-year-old son, Hayes, after he's already in his crib, so they woke him up, I was super fired up, you know, because Katie was out at a Bible study, so I, I, I put Hayes down, I put, you know, Everett and Scarlett back to bed, and it was obvious that something was on Everett's mind, so I said, Everett, what'd you walk in for anyway, dude, and he said something to me he has never said before. He said, I want to talk to you in private. Yeah, six years old. And to be honest with you, it kind of commanded my respect. I said, all right, let's do this. So let's do a little private talk. So we went into my bedroom, and I, I sat in this recliner, this like rocking recliner. And uh, this story is going to quickly get not funny, and I, I should warn you about that now. Ever walked in, and um, dad going it. <clears throat> he was really nervous, like he wouldn't look me in the eye, and it was obvious that something was really troubling him. And so he was pacing in front of me, and he opened up to me about how much it bothered him that he wasn't up there with me. And he said something. I'll, I'm never going to forget this. I'll remember this as long as I live. He said something. As soon as he said the words, he just broke down crying. And he kept repeating it. He said, I regret it. I regret it, Dad. I regret that I wasn't up there with you. And the reason it was tearing him up so bad was because he knew we couldn't get that back. You know, even if I do come back there to teach again, you know, I'm not going to do the firefighter thing. It's really a one and done sort of thing. And so he knew, like, th this was it. You know, that was our chance. And uh, we can't get that day back. We can't undo what had been done. And so I, I, I picked my son up in my arms, and I played every card that I had to play. I said, man, it was my fault. I should have told you ahead of time. It was so stupid of me to, you know, hit you with that. And, 
And I said, man, if I was in first grade, I'd have been just as nervous as you. Man, I'd have walked off that stage just like you did. And I could tell that, that some of that meant something to him. But, but if I could just get transparent, stop talking about my son, and start talking about myself here, I just want to let you all into my life. I have never seen more of myself in my son than I did that evening. Because there are so many things in my life that I regret. There are so many things I've done that I wish I didn't do things that I, I haven't done, that I wish I had the strength to do. So many things I wish I could get back and do differently knowing what I know now. So many times I know I have not been the husband that my wife deserves or the father that my children deserve or even the pastor that you all deserve. And, and, and I was thinking about that this week and I thought, and I'm only 34 years old. So what happens if God has me here for another 50 years? What is that burden really going to feel like? And that night, what I saw was my six-year-old son already beginning to feel the weight of that condition, the condition that we're all in, whether or not we like it. You know what that condition is? Here's the human condition. We're born into this life, into a reality in which time is always moving forward. There's nothing we can do about it. And we make so many mistakes and things so rarely work out the way that we want them to, and all we're really left trying to do is figure out how to handle our regret for the things that we've done and the time that we can't get back. A guy named Tim Keller spoke specifically to this idea in a book that he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. He actually wrote it during the pandemic while he was going through cancer treatments for pancreatic cancer. Here's what he said. And, and if, this is the kind of stuff that speaks to me. If you're anything like me, it'll speak to you. As a pastor, I've spoken to people nearing death who express guilt and shame for things they've done. But I've spoken to far more people who were wracked with regret for the things they'd not done. They realized at the end that much of their lives had been simply wasted and that their lives warranted a negative verdict. This regret assails non-religious persons as much as, if not more than religious ones. He said, we live with this invisible weight. When we're younger, we may say, nobody has the right to tell me how to live. Nobody has the right to make me feel guilty. Only I judge myself. But even within that framework, as the years mount, we see that we haven't even lived up to our own standards. The burden, barely noticed at first, gets heavier as the years go by. For more religious people, that may be guilt over specific sins they've done. For non-religious people, it may be a less specific, shameful sense of not being the persons they should be. Now let me ask you, what does any of that have to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I want to tell you absolutely everything. If you believe that this world is all there is, and after this, when you die, you rot, and nobody's coming to make things right, and there's not going to be any restoration, and this story isn't going to have a happy one, that we're all going to burn up in the death of the sun, and that'll be that, if that's your worldview, your understanding of reality, let me ask, you know what you and I are left with at the end of our time here? Nothing but our regret. And I say all that to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ says no to regret. Because when Jesus Christ said, I'm going to be with you to the end, what that means is that at the end of your life, he's going to be waiting for you. And what that means is that by grace through faith in his name, at the end of your life, just as he was resurrected, so you will be as well. 
And the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection, the promise of your resurrection is not a consolation. It's a restoration. So even a religion that offers you heaven, that says that after this your soul can continue on in bliss, even that is simply a consolation for what you've lost. But the resurrection is the restoration of what you've lost. Because in the resurrection, you get it all back. And you get it back in a way that was better than you ever imagined it could be. In the resurrection, you get your body back. And not not your old body, but the body you always wanted, but never had. You get your life back. But not just your old life, the life that you always wanted, but never had. You get this whole world back. And it's going to be renewed It's going to be completely cleansed from the horrible, corrupting power of sin. It's going to be perfect, and no one and nothing will ever be able to take it from you by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And so my point is that in a world that always seems to take more than it gives, the resurrection of Jesus Christ says no to regret. No other religion offers you anything like this. No other Savior stands ready to give you anything like this. Jesus stands ready alone. And so as we close today, just two people I want to speak to. If you're here today and you already believed all this, I hope you walk out of here with a deeper, more life-changing faith than you came in. But if you're listening to me right now, which I got to believe some of you fall into this camp and you're, you're still skeptical and you've heard it and okay, you understand it, but it's just not, you're not quite there, fine. Admittedly, I kind of feel like I failed. That's the hardest part about preaching, but fine. But I want to tell you, if you don't find yourself at least wanting this story to be true, that tells me that you haven't really understood it. And my hope for you is that you keep coming back because right now you stand where the people in this story once stood. They had questions. They were skeptical. They had doubts. But they kept leaning in and they stayed curious. And eventually, their faith in Jesus changed their lives. It's changed my life. It'll change yours too. I hope that it strengthens you. I hope that it challenges you. And I hope it encourages you, knowing that the same Savior that walked out of the tomb 2,000 years ago is still transforming lives. Happy Easter. That's it. That's all.